Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improved jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. On the last episode of Guilt, who killed Jordan Vidori. The police recorded and did 40 test shots, and out of those 40 test shots, I heard 36. Oh, so they actually went out there with a rifle? Yes, and, and using all sorts of other percussion instruments. Um, the tape recorder picked up all the sound in my bedroom, and I was sitting in the next room listening, and I heard everything. What gives you that exact sort of quarter past time? Because the movie hadn't started. It was a vampire movie and it it had um, Wesley Snipes in it. Oh, Blade. Blade, thank you. I hope you've all been keeping well. I want to thank you for your patience. I was in the middle of writing episode 9 when I had a new piece of information come in that resulted in an interview so important that I had to rewrite this episode around it, hence the delay. I've been working hard, and due to the massive growth of the podcast, there are many tips coming in, so there's a lot to sort through. Please make sure you've hit that follow button on Spotify or the plus symbol on Apple Podcasts so you'll be notified the moment every new episode becomes available. This episode of Guilt contains explicit and derogatory language. Listener discretion is advised. Let's get into it. In this episode, you're going to be hearing a lot from me. 
but pay attention, because this is likely one of the most important episodes to date. In this episode, we're going to examine the timeline of events of that night and early morning, and bust them wide open. In episode 8, we heard from Sierra, one of the only people to have reported hearing anything the morning of Jordan's murder. In Sierra's case, this was shouting and arguing at exactly 1.15am. Sierra was able to precisely nail down this time due to the fact that she was waiting for a movie to start. The particular movie was Blade, featuring Wesley Snipes. In the last episode, I asked you to do some homework and see if you could help me track down a TV schedule of that night to confirm this lead. And a few days later, after the episode was released, you did exactly that. A listener sent me a screenshot of the New Zealand Herald from that morning using an online database. From this, we were able to discern that on the morning of June 18th, Blade was not playing on any New Zealand TV channels. This includes the free-to-air TVNZ channels and paid Sky subscription channels. The only movie starting at precisely 1.20am was American Bandits on Sky Movies. So could this be the movie she was actually waiting for? But perhaps, over time has mistakenly remembered as Blade? Curiously, at 12.35am that morning, Sky Movies Greats was playing Dangerous Days, The Making of Blade Runner, which ran till 2.20am. Certainly not quite Wesley Snipes' Blade, but how many shows have Blade in the title? I'd say not many, so it's a hell of a coincidence. But if this were the movie she was watching, the start time of 1235 obviously doesn't fit with the 1.20am stated time. Either way, it's clear I'm going to have to go back and speak to Sarah again. There's a reason why I'm very interested in Sierra's stated time of 1.15am, and this has to do with a piece of evidence which I haven't yet introduced in this podcast. This is a vehicle of interest. In 2020, the New Zealand police released two still images captured by CCTV cameras on the main street of Paidoa, which show a four-wheel drive vehicle driving through town at 1.09am, and then again at 1.21am. If Sierra did in fact hear the argument at 1.15am, that would place this vehicle of interest in the immediate area at the exact time. While Sierra claims she never heard a gunshot, it would seem highly likely that whoever was involved in this argument would also likely be involved in Jordan's murder. Could this four-wheel drive be the key to the case? The pictures are grainy and blurry, meaning the license plate isn't clear, but I believe the make and model of this car would be obvious to some. We believe it looks like a Nissan Turano or Toyota Prado or similar, but I'm going to include these photos on my Instagram page and in our Facebook group. Can you identify the make and model of this vehicle? And if you live in the area, do you recall someone having this type of vehicle at the time that may have acted in any way out of the ordinary at the time of Jordan's murder? It's obvious that in any investigation, defining an accurate timeline of events is one of the primary focuses. In episode one, and throughout this podcast to date, I've been using the police's stated time of 2am as the likely time of the gunshot. This timing was highlighted in the 2020 TVNZ show, Cold Case. In the show, a senior detective on Jordan's case states, and I quote, that two people from the funeral home nearby both reported hearing a gunshot, and that they knew the precise time because, and I quote, 
they were apparently watching a movie at around 2am. You'd be right in thinking this sounds familiar. Were there two different homes up watching a movie at this early hour on a frosty Sunday morning? Or has there been some confusion over these witnesses? The reality is that I need to speak to these people from the funeral home that both reported hearing the gunshot. If you'll recall in episode 2, Theories and Rumours, in my search for these witnesses, I spoke to funeral home director Glenn Rogers, who informed me that the man that lived in the funeral home at the time was Stephen Roberts, and he'd likely ended up moving to Australia. I spent many fruitless hours searching Australian funeral home websites and calling around New Zealand funeral homes with no luck. Apparently, he couldn't be found. Turns out, that's because he didn't exist. A week ago, while I was in the middle of preparing this episode, I received an email from a listener knowledgeable with the funeral industry, and I was informed that there had been someone by the name of Stephen James who had worked at the home and subsequently moved to Rotorua, then on to Australia but that he wasn't the one living in the funeral home at the time. The man that was, was Bruce Jack. This is the man I've been looking for. So with the help of listeners on our social media platforms, and I encourage you to join these, I acquired his phone number and learned that Bruce had moved down the line into the central North Island. So without hesitation, I gave him a call. The line isn't the cleanest, so at times Bruce can be quite difficult to hear. But as he's getting on in years, I decided to include the original audio as it's important to help clearly show his state of mind and memory recall. And aspects of this can be lost using an actor. I did send him a message earlier, he didn't reply, so... Hello. Oh, hi there. Hey, um, I'm looking for Bruce, if he's around. I'll just get him for you. Thank you. I don't know. Hello. Hey, Bruce, how are you? Good, who's this? Um, my name's Ryan Wolf. I'm actually currently making a, a documentary podcast about um, the murder of Jordan Vidori in 2012. And I was wondering if I could just ask you a couple of questions about what you remembered from that night. Ah, yes, yep, I know, I'm the Greek, yep. Yeah, and you were um, you you lived in the funeral home at the time. Yes, yes, almost opposite when it happened. Yeah, yeah. Do you mind if I just ask you a few questions, <laughs> see what you can no, remember? No, not at all, not oh, at all. Okay, cool. Um, so you, you obviously worked at the funeral home as well? Yep. You, you were the funeral director, is that what it's called? Yes, yeah, oh, and, okay. and my bedroom was out out the back, the other side of the uh, the complex. Oh, okay. And so, so what was the layout in general of the? So you've got the road. Is it Hall Street there? Is it? You got Hall Street, and then uh, I don't know if you've got a map of it, but then was, oh, there was the carpet court. Yep. On the on the northern side, and then the funeral home next to that. And in the in the funeral home. So, what was the room that was the closest to the road? That was really a, a entrance room, you know, like a foyer. Oh, okay. 
Oh, yeah. But, but we were right out the back. <laughs> oh, so can you remember that night? Um, I mean, because you were, you were up at the time, weren't you? I can't, no, no, I can't. I, I really can't remember it, quite frankly. Okay. Um, I knew the guy, and I have an idea he's a suspect of this, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Because um, did, did the police say, did you, at the time, do you guys remember telling them that you'd heard a gunshot? Hang on, I'll just ask my wife. Okay. When when that good guy was killed and we were peeping at the back, did we hear a shot or not? No, no I'm sure I didn't either. Oh, okay. Oh, so they, you never said that you heard a shot at any particular time? I don't recall ever saying it. If I'd have heard a shot, I'd have been up and having a look around. Huh. Well, I am an ex-detective sergeant. If I was looking for a bombshell moment, this was it. In every piece of media I've read and police statements, the whole timeline in terms of the gunshot has hinged on witnesses living in the funeral home hearing a gunshot at around 2am. Now here I am speaking to these witnesses, and not only do they claim to have never heard a shot, they also make it clear that given the location of their room at the back of the building, it would be quite possible a shot could be fired that no one could hear. It just so happens that Bruce was a detective sergeant in the New Zealand police for over a decade, and while he does make it clear that his memory isn't quite what it used to be, and he can't say with 100% certainty, he's very confident that had he heard something, he would have got up to take a look, and he would certainly remember that. Yeah, I would have been up looking around. Oh, so you would have been nosy if, if you'd heard something going on. Oh, I think so, but, uh, but like, look, I'm not 100%. Do you remember in the house, can you hear much from inside there? You know, is, do you remember if it's, um, you know, if someone fired off a twenty two over the road, is it? would you think you'd hear it or probably not? Um, once again, depending on where you are in the, in, the, in the building, I don't think I would have heard it where, where it was allegedly fired from, which is, somewhere at the back of his, his uh, pizza. Mm. Um, out the back where I was, I don't think I would have heard it. So do you remember what that night, were you just asleep in bed? I don't, as far as I know, I am. I, I think I got up in the morning, I saw all the activity over there, and I wonder what the hell it was. Oh, it's funny, because um, I thought I'd read, you know, you go through different media and things, and the police have said different things, and I thought I heard somewhere they said that the people at the funeral home heard a gunshot at 2am, and that because they were up having drinks or something that night, um, but you don't recall that. <laughs> I know, I definitely wouldn't have been up having drinks at 2am over there. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I look, I'm not saying I... I didn't hear it. I'm saying I really can't remember it. And yeah. something like that, I think I would remember. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you would. Because definitely. I did know the guy. Yeah. I knew him quite well because we had a, a garage at the back of his shop as well. Oh, okay. Is that that little building that was out the back there? Uh, it was part of the building. Okay. And it was a, a garage that went in, uh, went in north-south sort of thing. Oh, okay. Right near where he was shot. (laughs) Do the police, obviously, they would have come and talked to you afterwards. Do you remember anything about that? No, I don't. Okay, but they they did. They would have come and interviewed you and 
I would have thought so, yeah. But I really don't remember yeah. so anything was it, about that. Was I it, did speak to the police later on. I know that, but that was at my investigation. Okay. I don't think I don't think the police came to our door at all. No, my wife said she don't don't remember them coming either. Again in the background, we hear Bruce's wife say that she doesn't recall the police specifically coming to interview them. Bruce did speak to the police, but believes this was at his own instigation. And the reason for him deciding to go to the police with what he believed to be an important tip had to do with someone I've already spoken about in this podcast and was a big part of this case. Rusty was a partner of a, yep. a guy called... Dick. Uh, sorry, who? Richard, or Dick, a detective. Oh, Dick. Yeah. Yeah. Dick Kemp. Yeah, that's the one. He was, he was a detective under me. Oh, he was actually under you, was he? Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so, um, oh, so you you thought that Linda and Jordan maybe had a thing going on? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's that's interesting. Now, they, uh, you know, I, I kind of thought, now, why would this happen? Hmm. Why? Because he was a nice guy. He was liked by everyone in the area. He used to give away free pizzas and all sorts of things to the homeless, or not homeless these days. But, um, you know, he was he was well liked. I understand it couldn't have been a bloody robbery. I didn't take any bloody money, as far as I'm aware. My theory, <laughs> and it's only theory, and not yep. Dick Kent, a very violent policeman, a very violent person. Okay, and. And he would hold the grudge. Now, as I said, uh, so he worked under you. Um, at one stage, he, at one stage, he was, he was the Takapuna, I think, of the detective, the detective constable, or something. But um, he, he was. I, I know how he works. How would you describe he was, how he works? <laughs> He was asked to lead the police, we'll put you that way. <laughs> Just to clarify, Bruce said here that Dick was asked to leave the police. Yeah, what was the reason? Um, close association with Mandy. <laughs> Only drug people. Okay. Oh, yeah, close that's... association with them. Uh, he was a very violent person. And in my theory... Is that if if his his lady, which is Rusty, that lived above the the second hand shop she had, and Jordan had anything going, and he would have found out about it, he would have done something about it. Okay, let's take a moment to unpack. First, it's important to be clear that as Dick has passed away, he isn't presented with the opportunity to defend himself. But this information is crucial in helping paint a better picture of who Dick really was. If you'll recall, I spoke to Dick's former employer in an earlier episode, and he had nothing but positive things to say about Dick. But he also didn't know the reason Dick had left the police force. While I don't know the exact details, 
I know it had to do with Dick having too close of an involvement with people involved in the drug trade. This is actually not the first time I'd heard this. However, my previous source didn't have a direct link to the police, so I wasn't sure about the validity of the claim. But as Bruce was a detective, I'm confident I can trust this fact. The next point to address is any possible relationship between Jordan and Linda, or Rusty. I specifically asked Linda whether there was anything between herself and Jordan, and whether this may have caused Dick to snap. And just just to cover that base off, like, so you never had any romantic relationship with Jordan, that's... Never had any... Romantic relationship with Jordan. Oh, no, because I actually said to him, uh, uh, do you like women or do you like men? <laughs> and he said, oh, woman. He said, I, I see the ladies of the night. How did you yeah. feel about um, the police? Did the police? It seems as though they sort of had their eyes set on Richard a little bit. Did you? Did he talk to you much about that, or did you know much about that? Yeah, well, they thought. Well, the ex-husband, maybe I was having an affair with the pizza man, and Dick had gone there and whatever. But nah, he's he's not a violent man. He's not. He's he would never do anything like that. Yeah. I mean, I was, I've been with him since I was 34, and I broke up with him when I was 57, so we were together for 23 years. According to Linda, she is adamant Jordan and herself never had a romantic relationship, and there's no evidence to suggest that they did. But Linda's comments about Dick not having a violent nature are in stark contrast to what I'm hearing from Bruce. During his time in the police, Bruce said he knew Dick to use violence to achieve the required ends, but also said that things were different back in the days. However, he has another much more recent memory of how Dick can react when he thinks himself or someone he loves has been crossed. I had an, I had a run in with Dick at the back of my section there one stage. Um, he, not him, it's a... It was Rusty backing out the day car crashed into my car, oh, and she was at fault. But boy, did, did Dick go really mental over that. And that just is an example of, uh, you know, he's going to get me if I did anything about it. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's a strange, strange person. He's a, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if, if he if he was How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. <laughs> but the police, I've told the police about it. I've given them my opinion. I guess they've checked it out. Mm. Uh, well, apparently, from what I've heard, because Dick's passed away now. I don't know if you know. but um, he has? Yeah, Dick has. Dick Kent? Yeah. Oh, has he? Yeah, he passed away a couple of years ago from cancer. Oh, that's very... Yeah. That's something. So it's funny because I talked to um, Dick uh, after Dick obviously left the police force, well, you know, was asked to leave. Um, I spoke yeah. to I spoke to his employer who employed him for, God, I think like 20 years or something, and they only had good things to say about him. You know, they said that yeah. oh, they said, you know, he smoked a bit of pot, but he um, was really nice. And, you know, so maybe there's two different dicks, you know, like two different. He could, yeah. he could be two people, maybe. Yeah, well, obviously he is because uh, I, I, I knew him when he was a policeman. I knew he was violent then. Uh, but we were in a job that, that happened all the time. Um, Things are a bit tougher in those days than they are now. Uh, and then I lost touch with him. I, I I heard that that's why he left. He asked to leave. Otherwise, there would be charges. And I understand that was in relation to his close association with the known drug dealers. So, uh, hmm. And as I said, I had a run-in with him. Before Jordan was killed, uh, I had a run-in with him, which just really showed his true colours. <laughs> While Bruce is only one opinion, I think it's clear that Dick had at least a somewhat darker side to him. A side that could, given the right circumstances, trend towards violence or threats of violence. Bruce and I continued to speak for some time, where he recalls his time in the police and afterwards as a private investigator where he worked on dozens of homicides. During our interview, he's mentioned more than once that his memory isn't what it used to be, but he had no problem recalling intricate details of cases, and to be honest, seemed sharp as attack. I'd like to play a section of the interview where Bruce describes his involvement in Alan Hall's controversial murder conviction in 1986, which as of April 2022 is set to be quashed after 36 years. The case in itself is extremely interesting and tragic, whereby Alan Hall was convicted of the murder despite witnesses clearly stating the offender was Māori. For clarity, when Bruce refers to Māori, he's referring to Māori, the indigenous people of New Zealand. While not the correct pronunciation of the name, it is a common part of the vernacular in New Zealand, particularly with the older generation. How long were you in the police force for? Oh, about 10, 10 years, I just said 10 years. 
Oh, okay. Oh, I was yeah. involved in another one, which is just bloody heaven. Um, uh, the Hall Homicide. Oh, which one's that one? Um, it's the one where the, um, in Papakura. Yeah. They've let him out now, and they just they have just overturned his conviction. Oh, really? Yeah. There's a guy who's got a father and two sons were at home, and one of the sons disturbed a burglar in his premises, and there was a fight, and the father got stabbed with a bayonet. Jesus. And the guy escaped. You remember that one? No, I don't remember that. With a bayonet. It's Shit. on the it's on the it's on the news. It was on the news about a week ago. Oh, okay. Because I was I, I um after I left the police I became a private investigator and worked mainly for uh people like Peter Williams and Ed Berry and all those top criminal solicitors in those days, which put me offside with the piece quite a bit, but <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't matter. Um, most of those people that I was offside with are all dead now anyway. But um, but that was one case I worked on, okay. and we took it took it to an appeal court. It's bloody kicked out again, and... Uh, in fact, I was interviewed by a reporter, Mike, someone. Can't remember his second name now, but Mike, about this one in which the police actually told lies. They not only told lies, they got changed documents. Yeah. It was quite obvious and quite easy. And and they really fitted him up, this, this young fella, because the description of the offender was over six foot black. Uh, Maori, rather, um, not that, not an island, uh, Maori. Yeah. Um, over six foot, uh, thick neck. Because when they were fighting this guy, they said they tried to put their hand around his neck and it wouldn't go because his his neck was so thick. Um, and things that were said by the boys, you know, when they, they put the father in the ambulance, they said that black bastard killed my father, and and of course he offended you European. Um, oh, and uh, and and I know he did that too. A guy called Ringrose did that, and he was interviewed by the police because one of the, one of the things said by the boys is Ringrose killed my father. They knew he was fighting at the back. So even though they said that, the cops still went for this other guy. Yeah, yeah, they went for the, what they did is. They had a couple of witnesses driving up the road, and they saw this guy crouch down behind the hedge. He ran across the road in front of them and down an alleyway. And he was a, a Maori, six foot, solid build, and wearing, I forget what it was now, but the same clothing that the, the boys described. And later on, the dog tracked down that same, same route, and they, when they got onto this poor guy Hall, who was living at the back of his mother's place in a caravan, not too far away, and and he had his balaclava and his bayonet stolen several weeks earlier, <laughs> um, and that was the basis of their 
the interview or, or the pursuit of him. Yeah. Now, these two that were driving up the road were interviewed by the police, and they said to me, and he's a Maori. And, and he was, you know, description was accurate. Later on, they, they interviewed him about three or four more times to try and get him to say it was a Maori. And he says, it wasn't a bloody Maori. It wasn't an islander. He says, I know. Yeah. I said, it, it, it was a yeah. Maori. It wasn't an islander. He says, I know what a Maori looks like. I'm a bloody Kiwi. Yeah. And so they left it that. Then they came back after they had arrested this bloody Hall, Guy Hall, and they, um, they they tried to get him to change change it, you know, to European. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he wouldn't. And then they came back to, with the deposition, for, for depositions, yeah. and they said, just sign here and you don't have to go to court. So he signed it without reading it, and it said, I saw a person. Right, <laughs> yeah. No, no mention of his, his size or anything like that. Oh, I know, it was deliberately done. Deliberately done. It's fucking it's and shocking. I know he it? did it, eh? It's shocking. Oh, I know. And that, that was only part of it. You know, this was this was in the days before discovery and he had been convicted without discovery and then after that I became a, uh, a private investigator and they wanted to appeal it and they wanted some more information found out. So that's how then Discovery had come in. So we asked for Discovery on this one for the appeal and they granted it. Also, for the first, at the beginning, you had no, no idea what they had? No, no idea. When Bruce refers to Discovery, he's talking about a pre-trial process that allows parties access to files, documents and other evidence that the other party may have. I included this part of the interview for two reasons. One, it's an extremely interesting current case that Bruce has first-hand knowledge of. But secondly, and more importantly, to demonstrate Bruce's memory and ability for recall after long periods of time. He makes a point many times throughout this interview that he doesn't have memory specifically of the night of Jordan's murder. But is this because he's forgotten? Or perhaps he has no memory of it because... He was fast asleep on the other side of the house and never heard a thing. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, as I said, my memory is a bit bubbly. Mm. going a bit now. Uh, but, um, but I mean, if you and your wife, you would both, surely between one of you, you would remember if you heard a gunshot. And like you said, you would have been out there if you thought you did. Well, well yes. Yeah, but my wife also had brain had a brain hemorrhage and lost on them. <laughs> Lost the memory. We wouldn't. We wouldn't be good witnesses at this stage. Yeah. <laughs> but that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I can just remember. Uh, you know. I mean, it's been a long time since we were out of here. Now, what year did this happen? It was 2012. So it's just coming up 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I was a lot more alert then. And, and as I said, I'd been in the police. So if I'd have heard a gunshot, I I would have been out there having a look. Mm. Yeah. Um, two in the morning. The way my hearing is, I don't think I would have heard it. Yeah. Um, but also, I'd be, I'd be nosing around myself. You know, I'd be wanting to know who did it. You know, because mm. as I said, I did know the guy. 
Yeah. I did know him, and uh, and uh, of course I've been there really heaps and heaps of homicides. I wrap up with Bruce and thank him for his time. It's genuinely been an eye-opening and fascinating conversation. And based on this interview, I'm very confident I can say that neither Bruce nor his wife heard a gunshot the morning of Jordan's murder. In fact, they have no memory of that night, aside from waking up in the morning and finding the street filled with police. So I can rule out Bruce and his wife as being witnesses to this crime. This means there is only one other possible witness, and that's Sierra. But she claims she never heard a gunshot, only commotion and arguing. And as far as the timeline is concerned, the movie she was supposedly watching wasn't playing that morning. But we do have another film playing with a similar name at a similar time. Ultimately, what this means is that Sierra has gone from being a witness who's been viewed with some skepticism as now being the only witness to have seen or heard anything that morning, and the only one that can give any idea of a timeline, although she never heard a gunshot. According to Sierra, the police performed tests to confirm whether she could in fact hear a shot from her residence, and found that in all likelihood, she would. So does this then throw the 2am time frame for the gunshot completely out the window? If Sierra heard the arguing, she would have heard the shot. So did the shot in fact take place at a much later time, when she may have been asleep? And if this is indeed the case, when? And how would this tie into the rest of the timeline that we know? Let's take another look at the timeline as has been presented by the police. Jordan was working on Sunday, June 17, 2012, as usual. The last person to see him alive was a baker, making a delivery at 10.30pm. Computer analysis showed that Jordan had been active on his computer using TradeMe in the early hours and his computer had been shut down just before 1.30am that morning. Sierra states she heard yelling and arguing at exactly 1.15am between Jordan and a woman with a Pacific Island accent. 4am. Barry sees Jordan deceased at the back gate as he leaves to go to work. He pulls over on the main street where he sees Linda waving goodbye. He then informs her there's a body at the gate. Linda does nothing for two hours, until she eventually calls Dick at approximately 6am. Dick then calls the police and ambulance, who arrive within approximately 15 minutes. You'll notice that when we remove the time of the gunshot from this timeline, we're now suddenly presented with a much different picture. Sierra hears arguing and yelling at 1.15, and then the next known element is the discovery by Barry. But then when was the shot? Is it possible that the shot was fired far closer to the time of discovery? And if this is the case, does this make the subsequent two-hour time delay more suspicious? Perhaps to provide time for someone to remove themselves from the scene? I'm speculating here, but given the strange circumstance surrounding Jordan's discovery, I think it's warranted. There's one part of this timeline that I haven't yet addressed. That's the last person to see Jordan alive. In any timeline of a homicide, this is going to be the very first place the police or any investigator is going to look for clues as to what might have transpired. And in Jordan's case, this was apparently a baker making a delivery to Jordan at 10.30pm. But I'd struggled to find who this person was. And when I made inquiries with staff as to what type of bakery deliveries Jordan might get, all I got back were blank faces. As in every restaurant, Many hands make a ship, 
And as Jordan's was a small pizzeria, he had a few very loyal, very involved staff. There are none more so than Tatiana, who almost looked at Jordan as a father figure. I had an emotional interview with her, which you'll be hearing in an upcoming episode. But let's jump forward to that interview briefly, where I ask her about this bakery delivery. They did mention on there that the last person that saw him was, remember, the baker or something. Yeah, I remember saying that. I... We didn't have bakers. Like, nothing... We didn't sell anything that wasn't made in the shop. We made our own pizza bases. Like, everything was made, so I don't understand why there would be a baker or things. Like, okay, Bid Food, Gilmore's, um, we had Mr. Salad... So it dropped off our like yeah. lettuce and all that kind of stuff, but that was usually early, like during the day or while we were open, um, and that was basically it because everything else he would buy when he was in Auckland or he'd go to Hamilton and shop himself, like go to Gilmore's and that kind of stuff. The amount of times I had to empty his boot, it'd take me like an hour because he's just gone, driven himself to Hamilton and just filled his boot with all the things that he needed and come home. It was just easier for him than going online and trying to figure out what he needed. And So I, a baker doesn't make... It doesn't make any sense to me. You'll recall I spoke to Gareth Smith in an earlier episode and he was perplexed at the thought of Jordan receiving a bakery delivery at 10.30pm. The only thing he could think of was a person by the name of Baker that he thought could have visited. Yeah, I mean, but they, they mentioned that, that there was someone who came at 10.30, a Baker, I think, that um, was the last person to actually oh, see Oh, Baker, him. I think that's the surname. There was a one of the old locals he was actually good mates with there, an older guy, and his daughter used to work there, Joe, I think her name was. But he was, he'd sometimes drop by at night and sit down and have chats and that. I think Baker was his surname, actually. Oh. yeah. I think. Yeah, there were a couple of people that just sometimes drop by and have a bit of coffee in there and chat with Jordan when he was closed. And yeah. I've since tried to find this person by the name of Baker, but so far haven't been able to track him or her down. Gareth did also say he wasn't sure about the name, but it was all he could logically think of. The point of this is that both Tatiana and Gareth worked that day. Both were a big part of running the restaurant and neither have any knowledge of Jordan ever getting bakery deliveries. So who was the last person to see Jordan alive? I'm confident this person was not making a bakery delivery, so what were they doing there? It's well known that Jordan would stay open late for pizzas, so someone being there at that time is not unusual, but they could hold valuable information relating to Jordan's demeanour that night, or other vital clues. Once again, I'm going to reach out to you, were you the person that last saw Jordan alive? Or is this someone you know? If you have any information in this regard, please email us at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. There's a recurring theme starting here. And that's the known timeline is getting shakier and shakier. Almost every part of it contains elements that either aren't accurate or are just flat out untrue. We now know that the most crucial piece of evidence in this case, the time of the gunshot, is in reality not known, as it was never heard. Sierra claims to have heard arguing at a certain time based on a movie she was watching, but we've proved that this is at least partially untrue, as that movie wasn't actually playing that morning. Jordan didn't use a baker, so the last person to see him alive couldn't have been someone making a delivery. 
So what does this leave us with? All the remaining pieces of the timeline involve Barry, Linda, Dick, and this suspicious two-hour time delay. The question is, is this just another strange, innocuous piece of this puzzle, or something more? Does the answer to the question lie here, right back where we started? Guilt is written, produced, and edited by me, Ryan Wolf. Title track, Jukebox, by Patrick Patricios. Opinions of guests of the podcast are just that, and are not necessarily the opinion of the podcast itself. For further information and updates on the case, you can follow me on Instagram at RyanWolfNZ. And also, please feel free to join our Facebook group. You'll find this on our Facebook page at Brevity Studios NZ. For tips, you can contact us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. On the next episode of Guilt, Who Killed Jordan Fedori? There was a bloke, he was a friend of ours, and we had a uh, fair bit to drink, and I went to crash out, and he just, he, he was on and on and on, I said, oh, come on, man, enough, enough. I said, you keep going at me, there was like an ornamental um, battle axe in the room. <laughs> I was just fucking around being silly. I said, oh, come on, man, you don't stop, or, you know, yada yada. But he, uh, yeah, so I, I, I picked it up foolishly, um, Swung it at him jokingly at his leg yep. and just grazed him. So yeah, he was. I went through a lot of shit, and he was always there.